Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Uh, I have a big announcement, though, okay, and it's this. I have invented a new holiday. I know it's a Labor Day, but I've invented a new holiday. So we're in week five of our series, Dear Church, and we are looking at the letters of Paul that he wrote to various churches, most of which, the one including today, that he actually started years before, and then he corresponds back and forth with them, and the Holy Spirit inspired many of these letters, and so they are in uh, the Bible and the New Testament, and so we get to read a little bit of what he instructed these churches to do and how he instructed them to go and different messages to them. We get to kind of be in on that information. So I said I invented a new holiday. Really, I didn't. Paul did. And actually, as we'll discover this morning, Paul didn't really invent this new holiday. Really, God invented it from the very beginning. And so today, I want us this weekend to celebrate Spiritual Labor Day. That's the new holiday. I know it's, not, it's kind of a cheap trick. I just added one word to the holiday for this weekend. But this is a brand new holiday. And what I hope that we see here is what I think on the surface can appear to be a very simple idea almost so simple that we just don't even think about it most of the time, but it is essential to our faith. So this spiritual labor day is what we're going to explore as we look today at the book of Galatians. So the book of Galatians is written, again, by Paul to various churches that he started in the city or region of Galatia in the Middle East, and we're going to um, see that they have a big problem that Paul addresses. His main idea in this book addresses a a big issue that they have when he hears that things aren't really going too well. Even though he started them strong, they should know what they're doing. They should be just moving right along. But they have an issue, and the issue is the people are, are believing false teaching. So Paul has to address this issue in many different ways and so what, what we're going to start out with here a little bit before we get directly into reading some of Galatians, we're in Galatians 3, a uh, majority of our time today, um, is there's two equations. One is a false equation that is being taught by different people around the area in those churches. And then the second one is what Paul's trying to get them to understand. So we're going to celebrate, we have to know how to celebrate Spiritual Labor Day in order to celebrate it. So here's the first Galatian equation that we see that is the false teaching that's being taught. Paul addresses this issue. So the thing that's being taught is belief plus obedience equals salvation. This is the main idea that's being taught in these churches that Paul's like, no, that's not how this works. So what's being taught now, it sounds pretty good. It sounds about right, but it's way off. It's actually antithetical to what faith in Christ really is. So what's being taught, again, faith in Jesus, belief, plus obedience to the law equals your salvation. Paul says that's not how this Jesus thing works at all. 
So he tries to then take apart this idea, false idea, and then rebuild the correct equation to them throughout Galatians, which we'll explore today. So here's the correct equation that we're going to try to drill into our brains, okay? It's not belief plus obedience equals salvation. It is simply belief equals salvation, and that leads to obedience, It almost seems so subtle that it doesn't seem like much of a distinction, but it is a huge distinction, so much so that that is all that Galatians is about. It's not that faith plus obedience equals salvation. It's faith equals salvation, which leads to loving obedience to God. Those are two big distinctions that we will look at here today. And it's easy, I think, even for us today in our modern Western culture to confuse the two or to believe the wrong one altogether. Because our culture today is like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I'm gonna, I have control over my destiny. What The decisions that I make matter to the rest of my life. That's how we tend to think about how life works. And so we're tempted to see salvation and our faith in this same way. I have to work to earn this thing. There's no free lunch. There's no giveaways. Okay, God's not the federal government. He's just not going to give you everything for free all the time, right? That's not how it works. And, but we think that's how we're trained. Even our government works that way. Everything that we do, we have to, we have to earn these types of things. Well, that's not how it works at all. And so what, what Paul does, and we'll get into Galatians 3 in just a second, Paul goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, to show us how this is so important, why this is so important. He, makes, he takes great lengths to make this distinction obvious and to show us the importance of this distinction. So he goes back to Genesis. So we're going to read in Galatians 3. I know I said Genesis. We're going to go there too. But he's referring to Abraham and how he received salvation way, way, way back a long time ago. So go to Galatians 3, verse 15, and hopefully this will make sense um, as we get going here. He uses Abraham as this example that faith equals, obe- faith equals salvation that leads to our obedience. Galatians 3, let's start at verse 15 and see what Paul says here. He writes, dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. So again, for three, two and a half chapters, he's been telling this equation in different ways. But he says, let me give you an example that you'll understand. He says, just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case with our faith. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child... And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child, and that, of course, means Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise, but God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. It seems a bit obscure. We're going to explain that. We'll go back to the original text in Genesis here. But to be able to take this spiritual labor day, let's examine Abraham's promise that Paul talks about here in Galatians chapter 3. So God gives a broad promise in several different ways throughout Abraham's life. At least four different times, God gives a promise to Abraham. Now, he words it differently every time, and there are some times where this part is in there, and sometimes that part's not in that way. But the whole overarching thing, the first time that 
God appears to Abraham, it's in Genesis 12, when God, Abraham hasn't even worshipped God, doesn't really even maybe know about this God, but God speaks to him anyway, and he promises Abraham a few things. He promises him many descendants, he promises him land and blessing. Descendants, land, and blessing. That's the crux of Abraham's promise from God. And as we read, Abraham quickly, he's probably already maybe fairly well off, but he quickly becomes filthy rich. I mean, he's got all kinds of money, land, possessions, animals, stuff. And also at the same time, so this is uh, Genesis 12, and the next chapter, Genesis 13, Abraham's so wealthy, and his nephew, so they're kind of traveling nomads. That's how the people were back in this ancient culture. And so he and his nephew Lot are both filthy rich, so much so that their stuff's getting mixed up with each other. Their servants are starting to fight with each other. It's just not a good situation. So Abraham and Lot decide we've got to split. We've got to part ways. This is not going to work. Family feud is a cool idea, maybe in the 2000s or the 1970s. But right now, in the you know, 2000s BC, this is not going to work. And so he, he says, okay, Lot, I will let you have first pick. You, you look around and you decide what looks best and you can go have that land and then I'll take the rest. So Lot takes what he thinks is the best of the best and he goes off on his way and Abraham gets everything else. So right after these two men split is now the second time that God re-energizes Abraham with his promise. So let's read this. This is, this is sort of what um, Paul is alluding to. This is Genesis chapter 13 verses 14 through 17. So it says this, After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, Look as far as you can see in every direction, north and south, east and west. I am giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction, for I am giving it to you. Again, this is a reintroduction to the promise that Abram had already received from God in Genesis 12. God reinforces it here in Genesis 13. And we see the same thing, descendants, land, and blessing. We see that here in Genesis 13. But there are really, we'll look for just a minute here, there are really three layers to this promise that we have to kind of peel back to get to what Paul's talking about in Galatians 3. I know you gotta, you got to travel with me here. It's not like A to B. we got to kind of go all over the place, but hopefully the payoff will be worth it, okay? So there's three layers to this promise that we want to work through for just a second. First is the idea of descendants and land. That's the main crux of this promise. And that's where it starts out. All nations of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants in the land I'm going to give you. And then it takes hundreds and hundreds of years for this to happen. But eventually, Abraham's descendants become a nation called Israel. And they eventually get their own land, their own country. They settle there. And that's part of that. It took hundreds and hundreds of years, but God kept his promise to Abraham. And the people grew in number. And as God promised, they became a blessing to everyone around them. And they did this in several ways. I mean, they, they built up, you know, all kinds of wealth that they could then be a blessing financially to the region around them to build up sort of this little desert nothing into what became a flourishing civilization. Uh, really, and really what was the blessing to them was their religious devotion. Built a brand new civilization for this part of the world that blessed them and still to this day in some way does. So this came true, that's, but that's the first layer of this. But remember what we read in Galatians 3 at the beginning, Paul emphasizes that 
the word that God uses originally in this promise that we see a lot in English translated descendants is not maybe the best English translation because Paul tells us in Galatians 3, it's not a plural word. So I think the King James probably has it right. It's seed, which even that can be plural, right? But Paul's saying if you look at the exact word that's written there that's given to Abraham, it is a singular word. It's not plural. It's not seeds. It's not seed multiple. It's one. So then that's the second layer of this promise is the descendant of Abraham is obviously Isaac. He has one son of the promise, and that's his, that's his seed, right? So he's, and as we know, Isaac is a miracle child. Um, Abraham and Sarah have not been able to have any children, and they are old. They are way past childbearing years, but God still tells them, I'm still going to give you the promise of a descendant. So if you're going to have many, if you're going to make a nation, you got to have at least one son, okay? That's got, it's got, you got to start somewhere, but it hasn't happened yet. And we'll get more on this a little bit next week, uh, this sort of process that they go through uh, as we look at another book of the Bible, but it kind of works both ways here. But so Isaac is the child of promise, which is interesting because the promise is given to Abraham, but it's got to come through Isaac. Do you see that? It, it, the promise is given to Abraham, but it's got to come through his seed, his descendant, which is why when Isaac is maybe late teen young man in Genesis 22, when Abraham is willing to sacrifice his only son, the son of promise, that's why that's such a big deal. Because it's not like he has seven sons and I can kill this one and have six more that are going to fulfill God's promise. No, this is the only one. This is the one we waited for, prayed for, believed for, that God promised for decades. Now we have him and God, you want me to sacrifice him? It's a big deal. And it's such a big deal that when you read in Hebrews in the New Testament, it tells you the level of Abraham's faith. In Hebrews, it says, Abraham had such great faith to believe God's promise that he was willing to obey God's command to sacrifice the child of the promise because he knew that because God would always keep his promise, he would raise his son back from the dead if he had to in order to keep his promise. Abraham believed he had that kind of crazy faith to believe that if I, if I obey what God's wanting me to do here by faith, that he can do what cannot be done in order to still keep his promise. It's a big deal. So that's the second layer here is Isaac, right? He's the, he's the seed, he's the descendant, right? But Paul says, no, no, there's one more layer to peel back here. He's, he's saying, think further out than the next generation. Think further out than Abraham's son, his literal descendant. He's saying, think a couple thousand years out further. Paul says, no, the singular seed that was promised to Abraham was in fact Jesus Christ. That's the third and final and true layer of this promise given to Abraham. Paul says that Jesus is the true, full, final child of promise. Jesus is the true, full, final fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So he's saying, yes, Isaac was the child of promise, and yes, he was a miracle, and yes, that's how God came through as he told Abraham he would, but really, Isaac was pointing to someone way out into the future, ultimately. And what he's saying, and what he, every time he brings up Abraham in any of his letters or in the New Testament anywhere, it's, they, they always see this. That's not obvious when you read the story of Abraham. They see Abraham was always somehow by faith looking even past his own descendant to an ultimate one who would come, Jesus. 
I don't know if Abraham even really knew that. I don't know if he maybe had this weird thought, like there's something cosmic here. There's something bigger than this. God's promise has got to be bigger than just land and descendants and money. And it was. It's a spiritual promise that God gave to Abraham that wouldn't. So you think that waiting four or 500 years for the physical promise to come is a long time? Abraham and his descendants had to wait over 2,000 years for the full and final promise to come in God's Son, in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says is going on here. And let me just do a quick aside. I think that what this reveals, we've talked about this kind of theme before, this reveals really the power of the Bible, the power of Scripture. There is a constant theme all the way from beginning to end. That's part of what we're trying to do this year as we go through the Bible is see there are common threads and themes that go together. You don't just, oh, there's a total different block here and it doesn't go with that. No, that it all fits together. There's this, you know, uh, phrase that's kind of famous and it's the, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. That's the beauty of the New Testament. It's not that, as we'll get to, it's not that it replaces the Old Testament. It's not just that we just need the, Old Te- or the New Testament. It's that they still, even now, work together. Paul, who's writing the New Testament, even though he doesn't maybe know that, he's writing this, and all he's got to go on is the Old, there's no Old Testament with him. It's just the Testament, right? It's just the Bible. It's the Scripture. And so it has to come together because the people who are inspired by the Spirit to write what is now the New Testament All they have to connect to is what they had before. So we know it all fits together, and I think that this points that out really, really well. So let's look at one other aspect, though, of this promise of Abraham that, again, is I'm putting all all the obscure things I can put in the Bible together. We're going to get through them today, okay? So there's an obscure passage in in Genesis 15. So the promise came in Genesis 12. It was reemphasized in Genesis 13. And then in Genesis 15, God's promise to Abraham is, is revealed in a third way that is very obscure, very unique, and you maybe have read this and just skip right over it because you're like, I don't know what that is. Guilty as charged, okay? So we're going to look at this uh, story in Genesis 15 and, ex- and explain why it's so powerful in explaining the promise that God gave to Abraham. So go to Genesis 15, uh, verse 8. Uh, here's what we read. So God, again, in Genesis 15, the beginning there, he's reemphasizing the promise a third time to Abraham. But Abraham's a lot like us, and he needs, I need some proof. How is this going to happen? Here's what he says, Genesis 15, 8. Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Skip down to verse 17, Genesis 15, verse 17. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day, and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. Now, when we read that, that is weird. We read that today, we're like, that, good for Abram, a good, great. I guess that means something, I don't know. Let's move on to Genesis 16 and see how this, let's just skip that part, right? 
But to the original audience reading this in Genesis 15, they didn't need explanation because they knew exactly what this meant. So let's do some cultural background for just a second. So Genesis 15, you might read this and think, well, he's just offering a worship sacrifice to God and maybe he's just having church. That's not what's happening here. This is not a sacrifice of worship to God. This is a covenant agreement with God. This is God solidifying his promise to Abraham in a very physical, tangible way. And in this time and place in the world, a very normal way. So what we've just read here, when two parties would try to make an agreement with, an agreement with each other, they would take certain animals, kill them, cut them in half, and lay them side by side. This is a normal, ancient uh, culture in this way. So after this is done, usually both parties in this agreement would walk through the animal parts between them that are laid open. Now, there are some exceptions where just one of them does, but most of the time, both parties to make an agreement would walk through these animal pieces. Okay, it seems weird, but that's what they would do. So it's, and what they're doing when they do this, what they're saying in essence is, if I break the promise that we are making, may I be like these animals. So you talk about cross your heart and hope to die. Like they took that literally in ancient times. You talk about like a pinky promise on steroids. Like if we make a pinky promise, if I break my promise, you can break my pinky. They're walking through these animal parts saying, if I break my end of the deal that we're making, may I be like these animals. That's what they're saying. That's what God does with Abraham. So when you know that that's kind of a normal thing, the audience reading this would be like, oh, God's making a deal with Abraham. So now they're both going to walk through the parts to make the agreement. That's not what happens, is it? So Abram cuts the pieces and lays them out. Then God puts him into a deep sleep. He doesn't allow him to walk through the pieces of the animals. Instead, Abram kind of laying there in this trance-like vision sees God in some in this smoking chamber pot and this flame. God walks through the pieces, and only God. So God is making this deal with Abraham, but he says, it's all depending upon me. We're making a deal but it's 100% on me to make this happen. Because how is Abraham going to make descendants? I mean, he can't make descendants. God had to supernaturally help him make descendants. How is he going to ensure that his, his seed prosper and are blessed? He can't. He's a man. He's going to die. He's limited. Only God can make this promise happen. So he's, he's solidifying this idea to Abraham. I make, we're going to make this deal together, but it's 100% dependent upon me coming through. And so what God is saying in walking through the pieces is just what anyone else would say. If I don't come through on my promise, may I be like these dead animals. That's a big deal. And that is exactly, I believe, what Paul is getting at in Galatians 3. Because in the portion before what we've already read, he quotes what God told Abraham right before this event happened. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that happens in the beginning of Genesis 15. Then this event happens with the animals. So what Paul has alluded to with Abraham, right before that, he quotes that same verse in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So again, let's go back to the, uh, if we, I might be going out of order, Jackson, but go back to um, the equations for a second, or skip ahead to that. The two equations here. It wasn't belief plus obedience that made Abraham righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
And from that, he then was obedient to God. Even Abraham was doing that, which we'll get to why here in just a second. But I hope you're seeing what I'm trying to convey. And I feel like I'm doing a terrible job of communicating what's, right, what's in here, right? So I hope you're seeing this, that Paul's making this idea. It's just faith. It's just belief that leads to our righteousness, our salvation. And it was the same for Abraham thousands of years ago. God's promise to Abraham was completely dependent upon him. So Paul says, your salvation is the same. My salvation is the same. It's not a thing that we do. It's a promise that we believe. Your faith is not dependent upon what you do, but upon in whom you believe. And it's always been that way. But then Paul anticipates an objection in, in Galatians 3. He, he's so smart. And when I say smart, like he's Mensa smart. This guy is a literal genius, right? And so he's anticipating, as he should, objections to this thing he's saying. The objection is, well, we have the law, though. What about that? So he, he says, I'm glad you asked. So go back to Galatians 3. Verse 19, right where we left off, so he gets through talking about Abraham's faith, the promise of Abraham, and then he talks about Moses' law. So Galatians 3.19, Paul says, why then was the law given? He answers his own question. It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But remember, there was not two parties walking through the pieces with Abraham, just the one. So he says, but God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. So then he asks another question. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? What does he say? Absolutely not. It's the same question that we ask a lot today. Why do we need the Old Testament? Why do we have to do any of that? So we ask that question. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Is Paul saying, throw the law out completely? It's not what he's saying. He even answers his own question just to make sure that we don't fill in the wrong question on the answer sheet in the Bible. No. Paul is saying instead, the law points to the promise. They're not in conflict with each other. They are in concert with each other. The law points back to the promise. God's promise again to Abraham was descendants, people, blessing. Now remember, Israel, the Hebrews, were a people in slavery in Egypt, right? Before the law. So the law did not make God's people God's people. They were already God's people. That's even how he describes them. When he calls Moses to free them as their deliverer, he says, I see my people in bondage in Egypt. So it wasn't that the law magically made these people God's people. They already were. There's a couple things I'll mention about, about this to help us understand how these two things go together very quickly. We've talked about this before, but the law, one thing it did was it further solidified the people's identity. God's people, the people of God, their identity. We, way back in January, we, we touched on this, but let's look at it again. Again, 
They were God's people before the law. Abraham was called way before the law. Isaac, way before the law. Jacob, who is then named Israel, came way before the law. They were God's people. In Egypt, in slavery, the Hebrews are God's people way before the law. So, it's, so here's the distinction here. The idea of the law is because you are God's people, here is the law to show and explain how to distinguish yourselves from other people. Because you are God's people, here is the law to help explain to you how to worship God as his people. It's not to become God's people, obey the law. We think of it in those terms almost all the time, but that's not how it was designed. That's never how it worked, and that's not how it works now. It's not to become God's people we obey. It's because we are God's people we lovingly submit and obey. That's why the promise had to come first. That's why Abraham came before Moses. The promise had to come before the law or else it would be that way. It would be you to receive salvation, you have to obey the law to receive the promise. But no, the promise came first, right? You've received the promise, you are God's people, and through that, now the law helps you to obey. So that's what the equations then um, tell us. It's just simply belief equals salvation that leads to obedience. So the law pointed to the promise to give identity to the people. And here's the second thing that it did. The law points then not just to the promise, but to our need for the promise. The law shows us how much we need the promise. We'll look at a couple scriptures really quickly, two from Galatians, one from Romans 3. I'm just going to read them very quickly, and we're going to see a theme here to flesh that out. The law points to our need of the promise from God. So Galatians 3:22, Paul writes, But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Then in Romans 3, verse 20, Paul says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And then back to Galatians 3, verse 11, right before where we started this morning, Paul says, obviously, it is, so it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And that's a quote from the book of Habakkuk that we studied a long time ago. Okay, Again, the whole point, I feel like I'm either totally missing the point I'm trying to make or I'm beating a dead horse. I'm hoping I'm beating the dead horse. Okay. I cannot receive salvation through obedience because eventually I disobey. Let me say it another way. This will be fun, okay? I can't be made righteous through the law because eventually I break the law. And I know I break the law because the law tells me I've broken the law. So I can't be made righteous through the law because eventually I break the law. And I know I break the law because the law tells me I've broken the law. So I can't be made righteous through the law because of it. Do you see how we're cycling around to the same thing? That's the, I did that on purpose. That's the frustrating cycle when you try to live, try to earn salvation through works. That's the cycle you fall into because you're never good enough to earn salvation. You can never do enough right things or good things because eventually you'll do the wrong thing. So we live in this endless cycle of frustration and anger and guilt and pressure and sorrow and shame, right? 
another way to do this is the law is like a mirror. So when I look at myself in the morning, that mirror cannot help me look any better. It only shows me how ugly I am. Thank you for not laughing at that. Thank you for not laughing at that. But it's true. The law, or the, the law is like a mirror. The mirror can only show me what I look like. It cannot improve how I look. I'm going to have to go get a comb and run it through my hair. I'm going to have to brush my teeth. I'm going to have to get some face cream. I'm going to have to have some plastic surgery. You know, like whatever it takes, the mirror is not going to fix my ugly face. That's what the law is. The law is not going to make you do better. It actually shows you how you cannot do better. That's why there's so many laws. That's why they're so, so strict sometimes. That's why there's sacrifices built into the law of God in the Old Testament because God knows I've got to build in how to temporarily forgive them for breaking the law that they're trying to keep. So it's built into the system. The law shows why we need the promise, which is grace. The law shows why, how much we need to rely on the promise of God. So if my hope is in the law, I'm doomed. If my hope is in obedience, that's, nev- that's never enough. Because if I'm going to go off that standard, it's got to be not just obedience, but perfection. If I'm going to try to live according to the law, it's got, I can't make any mistakes ever. That's, that's the standard. So instead, I have to live in the promise of God that is grace in my life. Simply faith in him. If, I, if my hope is in the law, I'm doomed. Good works aren't enough. Being a good moral person is not enough. And I'm doomed if I live that way. It's belief plus obedience equals salvation. That's not the way to live. But if my hope is in the promise of God, faith alone through Christ alone, his death on the cross in my place for my sin, that then makes me right with God, not my good works, not my adherence to all the rules, not being a good person, but my faith in Christ alone. If that's where my hope is, then I receive salvation. My faith, my salvation, leads me then, as the second equation shows, to then want to lovingly submit and obey to God. I'm not earning God's salvation by obeying him, but because I've been given salvation through Christ, because Jesus walked through the pieces by dying. As, remember, if I, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be as these animals. Well, God kept his end of the bargain and still was like the animals. He sacrificed himself for our sin. That's what this whole plan has always been about. And here's the good news as we close. When I, again, as I try to obey God in this life of faith, I'm eventually going to fail. Okay? When you try to live this life of obedience to God through faith, eventually you will fail. However, the good news is, instead, when I see it the right way, okay, instead of crushing me when I fail and leading me on an endless cycle of shame and regret, for what I didn't do and what I can't do. Instead, if I live by the promise, then when I fail, it corrects me and leads me back to the promise keeper and reminds me of what he has done. He knows you're going to fail. He knows it's built into the system. So that's why Christ, being the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, taking on our sin and shame, frees us from our sin and shame. So I don't have to earn to work for, to receive salvation. I receive it as a promise, as a gift, and from that flows obedience. So I hope that you enjoy your Labor Day 
And I hope that you enjoy your spiritual Labor Day, not just this weekend, not just every weekend, but every day for the rest of your life. Bask in this truth that your salvation is not dependent upon you, but it's on the work that God already did. Your salvation is not work that you have to do, but it is a promise that you simply believe and receive. So enjoy your spiritual Labor Day. Let's pray. God, part of what we've said today may seem simple and almost too simple, but I pray that we have received what you've tried to get us to understand today. And this may almost seem too good to be true. No, it can't be that. It's got to be faith and works. And yeah, you know, no free lunch and no handouts. And, you know, I got to earn my keep. And, but that's not, that's not how faith works. Paul goes to great lengths to show us through the whole book of Galatians, really through all of his writing, that it's simply through faith alone. It's in Christ alone. The gospel, faith, is a promise given to us by God. It's not work that we do. It's a promise that we believe and receive And so help us, even maybe it seemed today a bit obscure, a bit abstract, help us to grasp hold of this truth that salvation is simply based on our faith in you, our belief in you, and we celebrate that today. And so I pray that we would enjoy our our Labor Day and our spiritual Labor Day as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.